Well, please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 4, Ephesians chapter 4, and the fellows have some Bibles, Gary and Jean, so get their attention as they make their way back. If you need a Bible, it's marked at Ephesians chapter 4 so that you can follow along as we continue our series, the title of which is on the screen behind me, Your Place in God's Plan. There was a time when there were different clothes to be worn for different kinds of occasions. Now, I say there was a time in the past tense because today casual is accepted as the norm just about anywhere you go. I've been in restaurants where the waiter is wearing a bow tie and dressed very formally, but I and most everybody else in the place is dressed casually. We live in a casual culture. But even now, in our casual culture, there is some understanding that certain clothes are appropriate or perhaps even required for some occasions. If you're on a team, then you wear a uniform to identify yourself as belonging. If you're in prison, you do the same. In the military, likewise. And when you leave those, when your playing days for the team are over, when you're released from prison, discharged or retired from the military, then you leave the uniform behind and you exchange it for something appropriate to who you are now. Now, you might be able to keep the team uniform in the closet and hang on to it, and you might prize your military fatigues. I assume the prison folks want their stuff back, and you're probably glad to give it back. And so from time to time, you might pull those out of the closet to remind yourself of who you were. But friends, God is recreating people. People who in the past were identified outwardly by how they talked and what they did. And those outward characteristics were consistent with the inward character with which all of us were born. Ephesians chapter 2, as we have seen, says that we were all born by nature, sinful, and objects of God's wrath. And it talks about the characteristics that would then flow from that inward character that we're born with. Chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians are about all that God has done to change us now from the inside. And chapters 4 through 6 tell us that we must clothe ourselves in a way that's consistent with our new life. Take a look at verse 22 of chapter 4. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its sinful, deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Put off the old self, put on the new self. And you, if you are a Christian, you have clothes, as it were, in your closet that are appropriate to both the old and the new. You see, when you become a Christian, the old self is not obliterated. He's still around. And unlike reminiscing about your playing or military days, 
and putting on the uniform for old time's sake. The clothes of the old man are to be increasingly discarded and removed from the closet that is you and is me. And you're to increasingly adorn and cultivate and enhance and beautify the new you with outward characteristics that are appropriate for who it is that God has made you. Verse 24 that we just read says the new self is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, what is it that the righteous and holy life looks like? What is the righteous and holy look that God wants us to have? How can one who's becoming increasingly righteous and holy be identified as such? That's why verse 25 says this. Therefore, because this is God's design, because all that God did as described in chapters 1 through 3, because all of that is designed for you and for me to be recreated, to be like God in righteousness and in holiness, verse 25 now, therefore, because God has given you new life, then it says each of you, verse 25, must... So putting off the old self and putting on the new self, what's it look like? It's going to look like what follows beginning in verse 25. The new self is to look a particular way, as we will see, and the old self is to be increasingly discarded. So from chapter 4, beginning in verse 25, through chapter 5 and verse 4, chapter 4, 25, through chapter 5, verse 4, there are six characteristics that are given of what it is the new self is to look like. And with each of those, as we're going to see, there's something that must be discarded regarding the old self. Now, there are six. If you have the outline that was inserted in your program, and I invite you to look at that, you'll see that there are actually only three, Roman numerals one, two, and three. And I have an introductory three items that I'll get to in a moment. So I only have the first three of those six listed and the truth is, I'm only going to get to the first of the three that I've listed. Now, I want to make sure everybody caught that. There are six total. I only have three of them listed. I'm only going to get to one of the three that are listed. Here's why I'm saying that. That happened about a month ago, where I had more stuff on the page than I got to. And I said at the beginning what I just said here. I'm not going to get to all of that. And I had someone who shall remain nameless, but his initials are Larry Halslander. <laughs> Come to me and say, hey, did you fill in all the blanks there? And so I am waking Larry up at the beginning of this message. <laughs> so that he knows I'm getting to one of the three. Now before we see what kind of speech and behavior God says is consistent with Christian character, I want you to see some things that all six of those items that we're going to see over the next few weeks, between 425 and chapter 5 and verse 4, all six of those things have some items in common. And that's what the first three blanks that I have for you on your outline are. Each of the six qualities that we're to put on, and therefore the things that we're to put off, are relational. The very first item that I have on your sheet is that holy living is this. It is relational. Because we're going to see holiness is not a mystical condition 
experienced in relation to God, but in isolation from people. Holiness is not something that monks do in isolation from other people, but in relation to God. Rather, holiness is something that takes place in the context of your very relationships with people. Commentator John Stott says, you cannot be good in a vacuum, but only in the real world of people. When chapter 4 and verse 1 tells us that we are to live lives worthy, that is consistent of the calling that's described in chapters 1 through 3, it then begins in 16 verses, chapter 4, that we've already seen, by talking about the unity that should characterize those who have been called out of the world now and to God. And God has formed this now new society, God's new community, so that one of the characteristics of those who have been called out of the world is that they've been called together. In community together, in this new thing that God has created called the church. And now all of these things that God is telling us that we are to talk like and to act like are all to be played out in the context of that unified community called the church. There is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. Holiness is relational. Our lives are to be holy, but that holiness is fostered and cultivated and strengthened in community. Holiness is relational. Secondly, holiness or holy living is positive. It's positive. Now, here's what I mean when I say positive. You know, we use positive and negative as good, bad. But that's not the way I'm using it because those words can be used another way. And that is this. Positive means what I I actually do, what I affirm, as opposed to negative, what I refrain from and avoid. And holiness is not, first, and primarily, what you don't do. Holiness is, first, positively, what you do. I actually have a series by that title, Positive Holiness. And I'm two weeks into teaching that series at another church on Wednesday evenings. I taught it here years ago. Positive holiness. And the, and the gist of that series is that holiness, being set apart, being separate from the world and consecrated to God, is first about what it is we're trying to accomplish with our lives and only secondarily then what it is we discard and avoid. And I make the point that most people don't understand holiness as positive. We think of it only and almost exclusively in negative terms. By asking, think about the commandments you're most familiar with in the Bible. Well, most people start with the the top ten. And most of those are things you don't do. Thou shalt not. Negative, stay away from, avoid. But friends, we need to remember what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40. When he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He didn't quote one of the Ten Commandments. He quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul. And the second is like it, Leviticus 19, Love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commands hang all the rest of the law. Now, notice that those two commands are stated positively. They're what you do. Love God. Love neighbor. 
And the things you refrain from, the things you avoid, the things you don't do, the thou shalt nots are all because of the thing that God has called us to do. Love him and love neighbor. If I love God, I will not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. If I love God supremely, I will not have any other gods before him. If I love my neighbor, I will not bear false witness. I will not murder. I will not commit adultery. I will not steal. But all of the things that I avoid, all the negative commands of Scripture, are all because of what it is we are positively trying to achieve. Holy living is positive. And that we often don't understand that is seen in the way we view rules, like the commandments of Scripture. It's also seen in the way we view the reasons we give for what we do or refrain from. I had occasion years ago to teach teenagers at our parent church. And I look back on those days and I feel sorry for those teenagers. But in dealing with teenagers, if you have them at home or if you've taught them at church, uh, you have heard time and again this uh, question. What's wrong with it? But what's wrong with it? And you see, friends, that is not the question that a Christian who is pursuing positive holiness asks. We don't ask what is wrong with it. Our question is, what is right with it? We first determine, is this consistent with what God has called me to do? We have it in Scripture, the what's wrong with it approach. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Paul quotes the Corinthians as saying, all things are lawful. But then he answers it by saying, but not all things are beneficial. In other words, the Corinthians are saying there's nothing wrong with it. It's okay. And Paul says, uh-uh, you've got to decide, is it beneficial? Is it constructive? So important is this issue of understanding that our reasons are to be positive, going after what it is we are pursuing, what's right with it rather than what's wrong with it. So important is that Paul has that in 1 Corinthians 6, and he has it repeated again in 1 Corinthians 10. We don't understand the pursuit of the life of holiness in the way we approach rules, in the way we approach our reasons, and then thirdly, in the way we look at righteousness itself. We often think that righteousness is primarily having my sins forgiven and paid for. Now, that's absolutely necessary. <laughs> but having your sins paid for, did you know having your sins paid for doesn't, does not get you to heaven? You've got to have positive righteousness to get into God's heaven. It's not only the death of Jesus, but it's the life of Jesus that you are given when you come to him in faith. The death of Jesus pays for your, the penalty for your sin. The life of Jesus gives you positive righteousness before God. Holy living is positive. It's what we're doing. It's what we're going after. Now, Ephesians 4, like the rest of Scripture, has a number of prohibitions. But those prohibitions, the things we don't do, are all because of what it is we're trying to do. That's why. As we're going to see as we go through these six things over the next few weeks in Ephesians 4 and 5. That God never leaves it at 
just don't do this, stop doing this. God always says, replace what is ungodly with that which is godly. He tells you not only to stop, don't, he says, do this. Holy living is relational, it's positive, and then thirdly, it's reasonable. So we're going to see as we look at these six things over the next few weeks, God gives, gives explicitly or sometimes implicitly reasons for the things he tells us to do. So holy living is relational, it's positive, and it's reasonable, and God is glad to give those reasons. Now, look at verse 25 then. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Now, do you all see those, all the things I just said in that one verse? Do you see, first of all, the relational component? Who who is it that I'm supposed to speak truthfully to and stop speaking falsely to? We're members of one body. It's relational. But it's also, it's also positive because God is not content to say stop speaking falsely but positively you must begin speaking truthfully. You must replace that which you must refrain from now with what you must positively do in order to pursue righteousness and holiness. And then it's reasonable. He gives the reason at the end of verse 25. For, because... Here's why you do this. You are members of one body. Failing to do this rips, tears the body. There's a good reason you've got to do this. Speak truthfully. Stop speaking falsely. It's because you are members of not just any body, but of Christ's body, the church. And so, Roman numeral one in your outline. There is the new you, the new you with its new clothes, and the new you wears truth. Now, as the Bible tells us, put off, stop speaking falsely, and to put on speaking truthfully, you may think this doesn't apply to you, and therefore, for these final 15 minutes or so, you can check out. I hope you won't. You may think it doesn't apply to you because you don't see yourself as someone who is untruthful, as someone who lies, as someone who deceives. A recent uh, survey that I saw said that 63% of people who call in sick are really not sick. Right? We were all treated... In the, in the 90s, to the specter of our president giving testimony under oath and saying infamously, well, that depends on what the definition of is is. Y'all remember that? And so we will stretch the truth. We will say we're sick when we're not sick. We've seen people at the highest levels quibble over terminology in order to evade the truth. Further, the Bible says of us, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? That's speaking of us. 
in Romans chapter 3 in speaking of the plight of humanity in general, of course including us. Their tongues practice deceit. The Heidelberg Catechism. You don't often come here and get doses of the Heidelberg Catechism. But it was written in 1563. And if you want to be edified, if you can get through some of the old English, there's some marvelous doctrine taught in these questions and answers that are this Protestant catechism. It's called Heidelberg. One of them, question 112 asks, what is required in the ninth commandment? The ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. What's required? And the answer is that I bear false witness against no man, twist no one's words, that I be no backbiter, that is, speak spitefully about someone, or slanderer, that I do not judge or join in condemning any man rashly or unheard of, that is, without hearing his side of the story, but that I avoid all sorts of lies and deceit as the proper works of the devil, unless I would bring down upon myself the heavy wrath of God. Likewise, that in judicial and all other dealings, I love the truth, speak it uprightly, and confess it. And that as much as I am able, I defend and promote the honor and reputation of my neighbor. (laughs) You say, wow, they got all of that out of not bearing false witness? But here's how they did that. You see, the Ten Commandments are just a part of God's law. And the rest of the law, which includes 613 commands total, the rest of the law are an explication, explaining more fully what these are like in real life. And they have taken all of that and put it together and said, this is what's required if we're truly going to obey God's command to avoid bearing false witness. So you may not think this applies to you, but it does. Ephesians 4.25 applies to each of us. Or you may not think that it's important. But just briefly, let me make sure that you're disabused of the notion that this idea of speaking absolutely truthfully, both in what we say directly, as we're going to see in nuance as well, is crucial. The primary intent of the ninth commandment against bearing false witness addressed the justice system in ancient Israel. And that term to give false testimony was a legal term. In ancient terms in 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 or in ancient Israel, before the days of forensic science, evidence was based completely on verbal testimony. And if a witness gave false testimony, then a person could be unjustly convicted and sentenced. And that's why in the law in Deuteronomy seventeen and Deuteronomy nineteen, two or three witnesses were required in order to convict someone. And you have that carried over into the New Testament. You all are familiar with that, aren't you? In Matthew 18, Jesus said, if your brother sins, go to him, show him his fault. If he hears you, you've won your brother. If not, take two or three others. So that, and then quotes Deuteronomy 19, so that every word will be established by two or three witnesses. This establishment of the testimony was extremely important for the stability of society, including Israel's society. Just as a quick aside, it's Matthew 18 and verse 20 that says, where two or three are gathered together, there I am in their midst. And sometimes people quote Matthew 18, 20, 
and say, if you just have a couple of people, <laughs> we have a worship service, Jesus is there. You have a church with a couple of people. Anybody ever heard that? Maybe you've said that. People think that. It's wrong, completely wrong. <laughs> when Jesus says, where there are two or three gathered together, I'm in their midst, it's a warning that when the judgment of the two or three have established the evidence, understand that the offender stands guilty before me, not just them. It has nothing to do, nothing to do with defining what a church is. A church is not two or three people having a bagel. The Bible describes much more. And so this idea then of truthfulness is crucial to society and its stability. It was in Israel, it is now as well. It's true in our justice system. False testimony on the witness stand gives a false basis for evidence. Perjury is what, is what it's called in the legal system, and it harms the pursuit of justice. One legal scholar said this, On the basis of my academic and professional experience, I believe that no felony is committed more frequently in this country than crimes within the genre of perjury and false statements. A recent survey of more than 50 U.S. state and federal judges as well as lawyers and academics that was conducted by the American Bar Association and printed in its journal, found that most of the judges interviewed said that increasingly, quote, lawyers appearing before them are bending the truth, not telling the whole truth, or just plain lying. Our legal system, like that of Israel and every other nation, depends on the truthfulness of witnesses. And quickly, let me underscore the importance of this for just relationships in general. Truthfulness protects your word, your word with other people. Honesty is a basic value underlying all healthy human relationships. A relationship built on dishonesty cannot long survive. Surveys of singles, some of you are single here, looking for relationships show a high priority placed on honesty. Marriages often fall apart over issues of honesty and trust. Friends are friends, but no wound stabs deeper than dishonesty. When you can't trust people, it changes your comfort level around them. It changes how you feel around them. So it protects your word with others, and honesty protects your name with others. Reputation in the Bible is very highly prized. A good name is to be highly prized, Proverbs says. And to create a good reputation can take years, and to destroy it can take a matter of hours or days. In the 1980s, Ray Donovan was the labor secretary for President Reagan. He was one of the first in President Reagan's uh, cabinet to be accused of wrongdoing, falsely it turned out. But it took years for him to be exonerated. And I still remember him coming before the cameras after being exonerated, after his name dragged through the papers, after he lost his position as the Secretary of Labor. He then asked the question before the cameras, now to which office do I go to get my reputation back? Honesty is of extreme importance. And so the Bible puts a premium on it and the Bible tells us how dishonesty started, and it's instructive for us in our, final, in our final moments together. So if you'll hold your finger in Ephesians 4 and turn to the beginning of your Bible, 
in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we will see from the, from the lips of the father of lies, as the Bible calls him, the devil himself. We'll see a number of examples in this early episode in human history of the kinds of lies that go on. And the first one is an outright falsehood, an outright lie. In Genesis 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, You may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. And now verse 4. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. An outright lie, contrary to, to fact, introduced in this first conversation between Satan and humanity. God says we will surely die. Satan directly contradicts what God has said. You will not die. And the woman is intrigued because she continues the dialogue. Instead of shutting it down immediately, as she should have done, this is contrary to the truthful voice of God, and anything contrary to the truth of God is to be avoided. But she entertains it. Maybe there's something to this. So there's an, an outright lie. And most of us are familiar with that type of lie, and we're more sophisticated than to engage in outright falsehood. Ah, but there are all sorts of others. And Satan demonstrates some of those as well. Another type of lie is concealment. He says this in verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now he conceals something. What does he conceal? God certainly knows everything and God knows good and evil but here's what he conceals God does not know evil by experience and when you eat of this you are not only going to know evil intellectually you are going to know evil by experience he lies to them by concealing a portion of the truth a material portion of the truth. And we all know that the woman ate, disobeyed, and experienced those consequences. So there's the outright lie, there's, there's concealment. Not telling the whole story when the whole story is germane and important for the person that you're speaking to. Or we engage in another type. Demonstrated in Genesis 3, a blame, shift, blame shifting. Not accepting responsibility, not dealing with the situation I'm engaged in truthfully, but rather, falsely now, trying to deflect toward someone else. Shifting the blame to someone else, verses 11 through 13 of Genesis 3. God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me. 
She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Adam blame shifts. It's her fault. Truthfully, the truth is, what Adam should have said is, yes, I've disobeyed. Yes, I've sinned. But instead, he attempts to lie by blaming, shifting the blame to someone else. The woman does the same thing. The Lord said to the woman, what is this that that you have done? And then she goes on to say, it's the serpent. And as I've pointed out to you all many times, one of the things that's implied here is that we know it's the woman you gave me, says Adam, directly. So this is ultimately your fault. And that's implied in what the woman says about the serpent. We know you made everything. You made the serpent. It's your fault. There's outright lie. There's concealment. There's blame shifting. Pleading ignorance. Adam and Eve follow the father of lies. They become liars. They have children who are liars. Cain murders his brother. God comes to Cain and he questions Cain like he had Cain's father before him. And he says, Cain, what is this that you have done? Where is your brother Abel? God knows full well where Abel is. And in chapter 4 and verse 9, where is your brother Abel? I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? How many times did you as a kid, or how many times do your kids say, I didn't know? I don't know if it's right or wrong. I don't know if I'm supposed to. Pleading ignorance is another form of lying that is practiced by humanity the world over, including many of us, if we're honest. Here's another form. Empty promises. That is, I say I'm going to do something, but not only don't I, I didn't even take the measures necessary to pursue what I promised to you. Or to put it another way, I didn't really intend to do it. So the husband says to the wife, I'll fix that next week. Forgets about it. Man, do you realize we're lying? We're not speaking truthfully? The wife says, I'm going, I'm going here. But she really wants to spend some money that they haven't talked about. So in addition to going here, she goes there. She promises that she won't do it again, or she won't spend next time, but takes no measures to change the behavior. Empty promises. Statements that are made couched in truth, but are not designed to be fulfilled. And the Bible says with regard to those, in Proverbs 25 and verse 14, like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of gifts that he does not have. My friends, there are all sorts then of nuances of lying and deceit. And every person here is guilty of doing it. Every person here. Everyone sitting here and the one standing here. You know, pastors, pastors lie. Pastors are tempted to lie and sometimes succumb to lying. 
I have your attention now, don't I? But you know, you go to a, you go to a pastor's conference and somebody says, so how large is your church? You're tempted to lie about that. There's a joke among pastors that when somebody asks you how large your church is at a conference, you can say, ah, it's somewhere between two and 3,000. Now, you don't say between 2,000 and 3,000. You say between two and 3,000. So if you have 10, that's technically true. Every last one of us is tempted and every, one last, every last one of us from time to time succumbs to the various forms of lying. What God says in Ephesians 4 applies to me and it applies to you. Now how do I become a truth teller? Let me give you some advice on that taken from the very helpful book by Lou Priolo, a little booklet, the title of which is Deception. Letting go of lying. And here's what he says. The first thing we need to ask ourselves, especially if we're habitual liars, is are we born again? You see, friends, habitual lying indicates that we don't know God. Habitual lying. Now, I'm not saying that you lie from time to time because we all do that. But a habitual liar fits into a list that God gives in Scripture. Revelation 21, the cowardly, unbelieving, vile, murderers, sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, idolaters, and all liars. You see how seriously God takes this matter of truth-telling? Habitual lying should give you cause to ask yourself, am I born again? Is my father the God of truth or the father of lies? First ask, am I born again? Secondly, identify your style of lying. I've listed several for you. And for most people, they have a particular thing they normally resort to. Blame shifting, concealing, whatever it is. What's your particular characteristic style of lying? Make it your goal to be truthful. Lord, I want to replace, as verse 25 of Ephesians 4 says, stop speaking falsely and speak truthfully to your neighbor. And so I make it my, I want it to be, Lord, that I'm replacing now the use of my mouth from lying in its various forms to speaking only truth. Confess. Confess to God, confess to those to whom you have lied. If you've been engaged in this habit of lying for any length of time, it has harmed your relationships. And you must go and confess that to those harmed by your lying. To confess, literally in Scripture, means this, to say the same so when I confess, I say about my lying what God says about it. God says it's sinful and it's heinous and it's a characteristic of the father of lies. So no weasel words. We go to those that we have offended by our lying and harmed by our lying and we say what God says about it. 
and seek their forgiveness. Almost done. We seek to earn back the trust of those that we've harmed. You see, friends, forgiveness, forgiveness happens in an instant. Trust is earned over time. If you have lied and harmed others, you can and should seek their forgiveness, and they can and should grant that forgiveness. They can do that in an instant, but that doesn't mean they trust you tomorrow. And so you do what's necessary to earn their trust back, even asking them, what things can I do to show my sincerity in this, to earn your trust back? Two more. Identify the idols that caused you to lie in the first place. You see, when we lie, we are always trying to protect someone or something. My reputation? If you're at that pastor's conference and they say, how big is your crowd? What are you trying to protect? What are you fearful of? You're fearful of the opinion of people. And so you're tempted to lie. If I tell the truth to my parents, what am I fearful of? I won't be able to do the thing that I want to do. And I want to do that thing more than I want to honor God or be truthful with my parents. Therefore, that thing is idolatrous for you. What is it that I'm trying to protect? Or who is it that I'm trying to protect? And then lastly, seek accountability. Remember, this is about relationships. In the body. And the body is here not to condemn you, but to help you. You seek a brother or sister who can hold you accountable for your speech. And I am done in the next 30 seconds. Do you know why, friends, ultimately this is so important? Because truth reflects the character of God. And lying reflects the character of Satan. The reason it is so important that you take this matter seriously in the various nuances in the way that we lie and deceive, concealing and empty promises and, and nonverbal communication that, that communicates false things to people. It happens all the time. We engage in it, many of us, all the time. But we must take this matter seriously because what is at stake is not just that people get hurt, but that God Almighty's character is besmirched. And He has called us to be a unified body and to be a holy body. I trust that you see the seriousness of this matter and that you will begin today and even now when we bow and pray to begin making right what has gone wrong with the use of our tongues as it relates to truth and falsehood. Let's bow together.